Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope, that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Hi, my name is Mike Young. It's been quite a week. I produced last week's episode on Wednesday morning, January the 6th, and I scheduled it to drop as usual on Friday morning. By that evening, I was questioning whether or not I should re-record it with some comment about the events of January 6th and the storming of the United States Capitol building. I decided it was too raw a subject to address in the moment, and I kept the episode as it was originally recorded. As I browsed the sermon titles for this week's episode, several stood out to me, but one particular sermon seemed to stand out from the others, and it was exactly the words that I needed to hear. Sing the Lord's song in a foreign land by Dr. Larry Taylor. The prophet Ezekiel was among the Hebrew captives in Babylon when he began to have visions about the future of his people and their God. Listen to one of the visions. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Then the glory of the Lord went forth from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight as they went forth with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of God of Israel over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things the Lord had shown me. We can imagine it must have been a long walk from Jerusalem to Babylon for the 10,000 Jewish captives King Nebuchadnezzar had exported in chains. To be taken from your home and marched as a captive to a distant city was a stunning blow to these Jewish patriots. The lingering memory of their once proud city now in ruins, their families left behind amidst the rubble of Jerusalem, burned like a thorn into their souls. These were people still in shock 
as the long desert miles slowly passed behind them. Upon arriving in Babylon, the Hebrew captives saw one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Jerusalem must have seemed like a small country town by comparison. Here were the spectacular hanging gardens of Babylon, the Ishtar Gate with its lapis lazuli dragons, the ziggurat towering over the city, and the temple of the god Marduk. It must have left their heads swimming, these Hebrews, wealthy and gifted in their own land, the cream of the crop, the upper classes from Judah. But now in chains amidst the splendors of Babylon, they experience the culture shock of a magnificent city dedicated to an alien god and dwarfing anything Jerusalem ever had by comparison. The Hebrew captives were taken to the east side of the city and settled in ghetto housing along the river Shibar, a canal for irrigation. And here in the weeks and months that followed, the full despair and depression of their situation settled in on them like a thick, wet garment. And why wouldn't they have been depressed? Their whole world was shattered, dismembered by a cruel war machine. They themselves were captives in a hostile land. Their once proud city of Jerusalem lay in ruins, a distant memory now, a city of rock and debris. The Jews' national theology was ill-prepared for such a disaster as this. These Jewish captives had been taught that their temple the city of Jerusalem itself and the Hebrew nation were inviolable. It had been an indisputable dogma in their minds. They believed that God would never forsake Jerusalem. And now with their holy city in ruins and their temple raised to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar's battering rams, the Hebrews' God had been completely dislocated. God's house had been destroyed, and these people had no concept of a God without a holy place to dwell. It must have seemed to be the end of the world. And to make matters even worse, they were tormented, tormented by their captors who demanded that they sing the songs of Zion they used to sing in happier days en route to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. And all the pain and humiliation of the Jews' captivity is expressed in the 137th Psalm. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. For there our captors required of us songs, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This story from Scripture turns on that question. It is a poignant question for exiles in all ages, a timely one now for many of us. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The Hebrews had worshipped a territorial God, Oh, it was true, they'd heard from long experience that God was the God of all the nations. Nonetheless, 
He was primarily Israel's God. God resided in Jerusalem. And these people showed little willingness to share their God with anyone else. But now their God had proven that he could not even protect his holy city. It must have seemed to them that their God had utterly failed. I remember once visiting in a home where death had taken a child from a couple who had loved and served God all their lives. I have never seen such grief as they told me through their tears, we are disappointed with God, we feel let down, God has failed us. All of this was bad enough for the Jewish prisoners, but there was something else that made their lives almost intolerable in the years that followed their deportation to Babylon there developed a lively correspondence between themselves and their countrymen back in Jerusalem, the ones not taken. The two groups were aware of what was going on in the other place. And the Jews back home in Jerusalem taunted their countrymen in Babylon by pointing out that God had spared them the indignity of captivity, that they were still dwelling in the city of David where God resided. And they looked with scorn on the exiles in captivity far off in Babylon. And suddenly all of the years of class hatred and resentment that had built up against these upper classes now in captivity found expression. God at last had taken his revenge on these self-designated favorites. It was a final piece of bitterness for the captives. They felt utterly cut off, bereft of the presence of God. Now here, in this situation, we can see all the ingredients for the death of hope, for the surrender of faith and worship, for the despair that attends the loss of everything dear in life. Unless God somehow intervenes, the Hebrews' faith in Yahweh, God of Israel, could disappear forever. At this moment in the history of Israel, faith hangs like a thread among the exiles by the river Shebar. This story is framed by the human reality of exile. Deep in our souls, we all know what it is to be in the far country. Sometimes we feel like a motherless child. But God specializes in exiles. Hope is born from the rubble of despair. Resurrection is God's favorite surprise and often it's signaled by the appearance of a new voice. And what a voice it was. For five years, this young priest had sat among the captives in Babylon, meditating on what had happened to them, struggling their struggles, sharing their heartbreak, trying to come to grips with such loss. 
all the while God was preparing him to receive visions like nobody else had ever seen, to hear words from God no other prophet had ever heard, literally to raise the hearts of his fellow exiles and to rescue their faith from early death. This young priest's name was Ezekiel. And to this very day, his name raises strange images in our minds. It isn't hard to understand why. Ezekiel was no normal man. Weird, bizarre, and far out are some of the kinder descriptions of Ezekiel. His behavior was so strange that modern psychological methods have been used to analyze him. One diagnosis is epilepsy. Carl Jaspers, the philosopher, thought Ezekiel suffered from schizophrenia. John Bright, the historian of the Old Testament, said, no stranger figure can be found in the prophets than Ezekiel. Why, at one time, the rabbis were even unwilling to let the first chapter of Ezekiel be read in their synagogues. In personality, Ezekiel was turbulent. He was stern and somber and fantastic. He was an intellectual of the first class and one of the finest theologians among the prophets. He was a sensitive poet of unusual skills, and that fact alone makes him almost incomprehensible to our own flat, prosaic age. Our age favors factual prose over poetry. Our times produce leaders with no poetry in them and then gives them power to lead institutions. I heard about one such man who was surprised to learn he'd been speaking prose all his life. John Bright is no doubt correct when he says, Ezekiel was no normal man. But the times didn't call for a normal man. The times call for a mind vast in its spectrum of faith, elastic and supple to new possibilities. The occasion demanded a visionary, a person of imagination and language, a soul so sensitive that it had a poet's spirit, a poet's tongue. It was time for a nonconformist who was intimate with the traditions of his people, but who yet saw with clarity a future that subverts the tradition and then resurrects it from its own ashes. It was time for such a mind, for such a soul, for such a voice. It was time for Ezekiel. And so he writes, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Shabar, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel saw a storm come out of the north. He saw fire flashing around four living creatures, and he saw a wheel upon the earth a wheel like living creature, a wheel within a wheel, turning at will, going in whatever direction it chose. And he saw the glory of God, and he fell on his face as God spoke to him. In the glory of God, we see in the Old Testament the very presence of God. It is a synonym for God himself. 
In his vision, Ezekiel saw a mobile God, a God on the move, a God with wheels. The wheel symbolized a traveling God who went wherever he chose. We live every day with symbols and we're never bothered by them until we meet one in the Bible and then we tend to become literalists. Ezekiel challenges literalism. Ezekiel saw the glory of God rise from the Holy of Holies and move to the threshold of the temple. That's revolutionary already. God leaving the Holy of Holies. Then he saw the glory of God move from the threshold of the temple to the east gate of the house of the Lord where the glory paused. Next, he saw the glory of God symbolized in the wheels move across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. God is on the move. God is vacating the temple. And finally, Ezekiel saw the glory of God move all the way to Babylon, 800 miles, and settle among the exiles on the river Shabar. It is a powerful symbolic picture of the withdrawal and the relocation of God. This was radical stuff in Ezekiel's day because the Jews located God in Jerusalem. And for God to move out of the holy city was unthinkable. The withdrawal of God from the places we've always found him in the past can be a debilitating thing for people of faith. Millions of people today have lost God because the little brown church in the Vale has disappeared among the steel and glass of the concrete city. These people haven't redreamed their God in a new place and find themselves without the sense of the presence of God. Exiles in a secular Babylon where other gods are being honored. The departure of God, the sense of the absence of God paralyzes us in our exile of spirit. A peripatetic God, a God on the go, appears to be a moving target. But Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, God has no commitment to any of our structured worlds. The God Ezekiel saw could not be contained in some oriental village named Jerusalem, nor could he be sealed in a fallen temple or a lost past. Ezekiel's God was a mobile God who would not be confined to a narrow strip of land in Palestine. So this prophet helped his people dream a bigger God to meet their national crisis. He dispelled forever the notion of a national God. In a moving vision, he saw the presence of God move from the destroyed temple all the way to Babylon in order to be with his crushed, defeated, hurting people. God is going into exile with his people. Charles H. Spurgeon the great London preacher said, as surely as God's children are in the fiery furnace, God is in there with them.
I want to tell you, exiles are especially precious to God. People who are out of the mainstream, those who wander in strange territory, exiles from the traditional and the conventional. The book of Hebrews speaks of those who have not received the promise of faith, but who have seen it and greeted it from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There are a lot of exiles today. There are a lot of exiles from Baptist fundamentalism and our church has dared to pay attention to some of them. We now know that there was a lively correspondence between the Jews left in Jerusalem and the captives taken away to Babylon. Each group knew what was going on in the other group and the group back home had draped themselves in self-righteousness to say absolutely that they were still in God's good graces since they had been spared the captivity. And so we have this situation where the Jews still in their homeland have no doubts while those in exile have no assurance. Sound familiar? It is precisely when we are denied old assurances that we are opened up to new experiences. It is to those with no assurance that exile, that Ezekiel brings the comforting message to the exiles that the presence of God is with them. God is with the homeless. God is with the strangers in the land, the displaced, the unsettled, the unconventional. There's a sense in which the prophecy of Ezekiel is a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. It's a story of two communities, one feeling that it has a lock on the will of God and the other in despair and wondering where God is. And so the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, though I remove them far off, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them. Now in the prophets, there is never a vision of God without an audition. That is, word always accompanies sight. Show and tell is the ancient teaching device of God. God's word to his people is that God himself is their home and refuge. The psalmist says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. The poet Wordsworth spoke of God who is our home. When we feel despair, when we are at our lowest, when we reap, leap, when we weep by the river Shabar, along with other exiles, God himself is there with us as sanctuary. Ezekiel brings this message. God's people would be renewed by the minority in exile, not those who stayed at home and clutched their territorial God. Ezekiel's mission was to search out security, absolutism, certainty, and then to undermine them. He brought an alternative message to a marginal people who lived as exiles. 
So this is the gospel according to, exile, according to Ezekiel. Are you in exile to despair? God is with you. Are you in exile to defeat? God is by your side. Are you in exile to depression? God is closer than hands or feet because God goes into whatever exile his people go. That's the Bible's message, isn't it? Over and over again, to Moses at the burning bush, to Jacob at Bethel, to Elijah in a cave on Mount Horeb, to Daniel in a den of lions, to the Hebrew captives by the river Shabar. God is with us in our exile. And ultimately, it's the message of Jesus Christ, whose name, after all, is Emmanuel. God is with us. All the prophets looked to the future and finally saw hope because God would triumph. At the end of his prophecy, Ezekiel looked into the distant future and what he saw was a new city. A new city that God would build for his people. And in the last verse of his prophecy, Ezekiel says, the name of that city will be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. So God no longer dwells in the old city. Let them have it. God has a bias in favor of exiles. There's gospel in that because there are many of us right now who feel like exiles. But faith can be at its very best on the edge of exile. Let's pray. We all know what it is to feel like we're in the far country. Lord, we all know what it is to feel like a motherless child. We all know what it feels like to realize that the things and the people and the ideas and the institutions and the hopes dearest to us have been taken from us we are left to strip down to our relationship with you and that alone. Oh God, let that be enough. Enough for resurrection. Enough for new hope. Enough for ongoing faith. Enough for a determination that we will find your people wherever they are, join ranks with them, and worship with them, and to the best of our understanding, be the kingdom with them. For a word that pierces our spirits and reaches us even when we have encrusted ourselves with hopelessness and despair and discouragement. We thank you 
For we acknowledge only God could penetrate the shell that's been created around us at times. Only the Spirit of God could stir those slumbering cords again so that we are able to break into rhapsody. Now we pray that you will call us out of exile, that you will set our feet on the path toward home, that we will realize that you do not sleep, nor have you taken a vacation, nor are you gone, but that you are present with us and that you are able for anything we will face in the months ahead. Let it be so, let it be so. For our sakes, to be sure, but mainly for the sake of Jesus. We pray, amen. I wrote down three pages of notes and direct quotes from the sermon we've just heard. I felt as though I had to write it all down because it was speaking to this moment for me in a very profound way. I've felt as though I've been in exile for several years now. The voices of those proclaiming what I see as a very territorial God seem to be loudest and strongest. What I saw on my TV screen and social media seemed utterly foreign to anything resembling the God and teachings of my faith. It was a strange land indeed. And singing was the very last thing that I wanted to do. My personal expressed emotion was not weeping, but deep anger. And if I was honest with myself, that anger was also counter to anything resembling the God and teachings of my faith. I, in fact, was claiming my very own territorial God to be the one true God as well. The irony of January 6, 2021 is that it was the day of the assault on the U.S. Capitol, yes, but it was also Epiphany traditional Christian celebration of the Magi's visit with the infant Jesus, as well as a celebration of Jesus' baptism. It's a recognition of Jesus as the Christ. The contrast of a mob claiming God to be on their side with the revelation of Jesus as the Christ is stark. And while there are many quotes written in the notes after listening to Larry this week, this morning these three seem to jump out at me as I think about this mobile God who is beyond all of our territorial claims. The first is Jews in the homeland have no doubts while those in exile have no assurance. And then Larry says, it is precisely when we are denied old assurances that we are opened up to new experiences. 
And finally, from Ezekiel eleven sixteen, Though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary for them. It is my hope that you will be able to seek sanctuary in this mobile and present God. The God who has no commitment to any of our structured worlds, as Walter Brueggemann pointed out. And as Larry reminds us and encourages us, faith can be at its very best on the edge of exile. I hope you found this episode of our podcast to be helpful in these troubling times. If it was, I hope you would share it in your circles and on your social media platforms. Our podcast is available on all the major streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Podbean. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks as always to Larry and Linda Taylor for their willingness to share these meditations with us and for all that they've meant to so many of us over the years. Until next time, I'm Mike Young, and this has been A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. And during these days, I wish you grace and peace.